Well, we have, uh, we have been in a series on, on loving our neighbor, and today we're going to talk about something that's a little controversial, but before I get there, I just want to... Uh, I love Costco for lots of reasons. One, it's one of the only stores I can still go to where they still feed me snacks, which is, I think, one of the reasons why people also love um, Trader Joe's. Anytime you can get snacks is a good thing. But also, it's one of the few places that I know... In fact, it's the only place in the entire world that I know that I can go and get a roasted chicken, like a 10-pound bag of my favorite cracker, and then sit down to have some optometrist check my eyes. Like, sitting in, sitting in, waiting, waiting in the optometrist's office, like eating my roasted chicken, just kind of waiting, going, I, I wonder if I should wash my hands before I go sit down, right? So, like, about a month ago, I actually realized that my eyes were starting to get a little blurry, and I didn't know if it was because I had been reading late at night, night after night, or whatever. So I just kind of, I'm going to get this checked. It's kind of getting up in age. I feel really old. Come on, don't groan. I, I do feel old, okay? So I go to sit down at the optometrist's office, and, and the, the woman brings this, it, it's kind of like almost like being in a submarine where they bring that thing in front of you, and, and then you're looking through it, and she goes, okay, now look across the room at this picture, and it, I'll admit that the picture looked a little blurry at first. And then over the next 15 minutes or so, she starts flipping different lenses in front of my eyes. Now some of them made the picture look even more blurry, but a few of them actually made it come into real clarity. And, and, and she kept zeroing in on what's the lens that's going to most help you see this from the right perspective so that you can actually recognize it. And it got me thinking um, about how sometimes we need a new perspective. Sometimes we need a new lens to look at the things that we naturally look at um, in the flesh and just go, holy crud, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And perhaps the single greatest area in our life right now that we need a new perspective would be about this election. And there are some of you who are inwardly groaning right now because today we are going to tackle this topic of the election, but I will tell you this up front. I am not going to support any one candidate in this. I'm not going to talk about any of the um, items up for discussion. That's not what the point of this is, and I'm not the right person to do that. That's not my place. But I do find this to be the case in our, our culture right now, is that this election, more than any in my lifetime, is the most divisive election I have ever experienced because not only do we have candidates who are slinging mud at one another, trying to assassinate one another's character, but I have seen friends, both in social media and, and, and just in interaction throughout the day, absolutely go tooth and nail at one another, belittling somebody because they've insinuated that they are probably leaning towards one candidate or the other. I've seen people unfriend one another on social media. I have seen the effects of when Trump had his rally and people began to flock there to have counter um, demonstrations and the, to see the violence and property destruction that stemmed from that. I have seen people leave our church in the last two months because somebody in our church either said something in passing or sent them an email that supported, or seemed to at least support one candidate over the other, and they said, that's it. If that's where you land, then I'm done with this place. And they've left. I've got to tell you guys, as a pastor, I, am, I have grieved this election cycle more than any that's ever come before. And yet, 
it seems as if the perspective that we have on our election cycle is typically influenced by one of two lenses, either the lens of political pundits in our news or social media, that of our peers. And they are shifting sands of opinion. And so rather than trying to continue to look at this election through the shifting sands of public sentiment that quite honestly has been doing nothing for me but stirring up more fear and agitation and even anger, what I want us to do today is step back and try to, to get a new perspective. Looking through the lens of the solid rock of God's word that what he said is useful for teaching rebuking and training up in righteousness. My goal this morning is not to say you should vote one way or the other. That is not the point of this time. My goal this morning is for us to simply see this election through the lens of Scripture. And in particular, there are three lenses that I want to pull out of Scripture, three truths that this God-breathed message speaks to us this morning. The first lens, and I've got to dive in because I've got a lot to go over and not a whole lot to time to it. The first lens that we're going to look at, and if you have in your outline, you can just be following along. The first lens is this. As Christ followers, we are foreigners in this land. Which is ironic when you think about it because so much of the conversation in this election has been dominated about how are we going to respond to people who are in this country illegally. How are we going to respond to people who want to immigrate to America? And yet when you stand back and look at Scripture, the reminder is that if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, then we are actually strangers living in a land that is not our home. We are members of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's almost all the way to the back of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. If you're in like Hebrews or somewhere like that, you need to go a little bit further to the right. So we're going to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to to redefine a term for you. When I talk about the kingdom of God, I'm talking about the kingdom where God's will is done. As an illustration I've given you, Dallas Willard, which is a guy who's way smarter than I am, talked about a kingdom being anywhere where the king's sovereign will is carried out. And the illustration I've given you is, if you were to go into a kingdom where the king said, I want every house in my kingdom to be painted green, then you'd have a really good idea of where his kingdom ended and the next king's reign began based upon where the greenhouses ended and the, color, uh, the different you know, shades of, of blue and, and pink or whatever color. I obviously don't own a home because you would never paint it pink. But, but you know, you get the idea. Like, wherever the greenhouses end, that's kind of the extent of his kingdom. And so when I talk about us being part of the kingdom of God, what I'm talking about us being is people who have submitted ourselves to a different ruler. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is, this is the foundation that Peter builds everything that he's about to say. And by the way, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the closest guys in following him. And he writes this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let me stop there. 
Because when you read that, that he's, he's addressing his letter to the exiles living in all of these Greek towns, places that are outside of Jerusalem, we probably think, as I originally thought, that he's writing to Jews who have been cast out of, of Jerusalem, cast out of the promised land, and are living amongst Gentile people that, that don't really share their faith and don't really share uh, their culture. But in reality... Peter is predominantly writing to Gentile Christians, people who have heard the good news, who were born in those towns that he's writing to, and are still living in the towns in which they were born and raised. That's his primary audience. And so we ask ourselves, well, what makes them exiles? The fact that when they gave their lives to Jesus Christ, their identity switched from being a, a member or or a citizen of that Greek town or province. And instead they have become a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is backed up. You don't need to turn here because I want you to stay in 1 Peter. But this is backed up by something that uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Actually, do you want to throw it up here? There we go. I'm sorry. Philippians chapter 3 says this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, although we may live in America, that is not our primary identity. A lot of us probably think to ourselves, I'm an American Christian. I know I do. But in reality, if we recognize what our identity is about, we will recognize that we are not American Christians. We are Christians who happen to live in America. Why does this matter? Because how we identify ourselves shapes the way that we view the world, shapes the way that we view the things going on in our culture, even shapes our response to it. When we think of ourselves primarily as a member of the kingdom of America, then we're going to try to approach the issues that we see as an American instead of recognizing that we're part of a different kingdom with different values, with a different king, and we approach it differently. Now, some of you are going, okay, hold on, Eric. I don't don't put America, I don't identify with America greater than I identify with my Christian values. But let me just ask you a couple of questions, because for me, some of these questions hit me right between the eyes. I'm just going to ask... About six questions here. Do you look to a candidate or a political party as the solution to the issues that we face? Do you spend more time reading articles, watching the news, browsing your social media feed than you do spending time with God and meditating on his word? Do you pay taxes but really resist paying or giving a tithe? Are you more outspoken about your political perspective than you are about your faith? This one's really hard to hear. Are you more concerned with the shifting morality of our nation than you are in looking into your own heart and recognizing the way that you have resisted submitting to God? That's real easy to do because everybody else needs to change, but I'm pretty good. 
if you said yes to any of these things, then chances are this last question would be yes. Are we more patriotic for America than we are for Jesus Christ? The first point I want us to get this morning is that as we approach this election, our primary allegiance is not to a politician or to a political party. It is to our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us so that our identity could be fundamentally changed. As we approach this election, no politician or political party, no outcome of this election will be able to save us. We'll be able to make this country into the country we want it to be. If we believe that that is our hope, if that is what we're approaching November 8th with the mindset of, that some politician or political party, if they could just get into power, would fix it all, then not only are we going to be completely disappointed, but we are going to end up falling into the same trap that the Pharisees did around Jesus' day. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Pharisees were very religious individuals, were very devout in their faith, desired to see the kingdom of God come breaking into the reality in which they found themselves, a reality that, in which Rome was the ruling power, and they said, we don't want Rome to be in charge anymore. We really want God to be in charge. And so they were waiting patiently for God's Messiah, his anointed Redeemer, to be raised up and charge. And yet, their perception of what that Messiah would look like and how God would bring about the redemption of his people was shaped and colored by the very values of the culture in which they found themselves. A culture that said might makes right. A culture that said you have to succeed at all costs, even over the broken backs of your competitors. A culture that said, if the ends justify the means, then by all means compromise if it can just get you what you need. And because those values had so permeated the way that the Pharisees viewed the world, particularly that first one of might makes right, they were awaiting a Messiah that would be a conquering king. And so when Jesus showed up, when their Messiah actually was standing in front of them, they couldn't recognize him because he wasn't a conquering king. He was a suffering servant. He looked radically different from what they expected. And even though he was doing the very things God said he would be doing, healing the hurting, feeding the hungry, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, he didn't look like what they thought, so they rejected him. But they didn't just reject him. They were afraid that if Jesus continued to speak, if he continued to do what he was doing, he was going to rile up Rome. And he might potentially cost those Pharisees what little sense of control they already had. And because they didn't want to lose that sense of control, they decided to align themselves with Rome, the power brokers of their day, and shouted crucify him as opposed to embracing their king, come what may.
The first point I hope that we get this morning is that we are aliens and strangers living in a country that is not our own. Our first and primary identity is not as Americans. It is sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. And I've got to tell you, no politician and no political party is the hope of America. Last time I checked, Jesus Christ was the hope. And even America, and I know that this is going to to step on some toes, and I apologize, but I need to say it. I know that there are some of you in here who have fought and bled for this country, and I thank you for your service, and I thank you for your sacrifice. I do not want to belittle this. However, as Christ followers, we must remember that America is not the Savior of this world. Jesus Christ is. And until we can embrace that and remember that, we will keep looking to this country and we will keep looking to our government to do what they are incapable of doing. So the first lens we need to recognize and view this election through is a reminder that if we are Christ followers, we are foreigners living in a foreign land. But this brings us to our second point, the second lens we're going to look at this morning. And that is despite the fact that we are foreign residents in a country that is not our own, we are still called to be our king's representative here. If, you're still, if, if your finger's still in First Peter, go ahead and go to chapter 2. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're not going to turn there, but he basically makes the point. Listen, Jesus didn't die just so that you could be reconciled to God, although that's one of the reasons he died. He died also so that you could be restored to the original purpose that God made you for, namely to be his representatives. And as such, Paul makes the point that you are ambassadors of our king, And an ambassador typically lives in a place that is not their home country, but they reflect the values and the heart of the government and the kingdom from which they have come. And Paul says, you are ambassadors of hope and reconciliation in a world that is sin-sick and scarred by brokenness. Which then raises the question, well, how then shall we live in a place that's not our home? Enter Peter. In chapter 2, this is what he writes. I'm going to begin in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Remember, he's speaking to people who live in the very towns and villages in which they were born in a lot of their cases. But who are now fundamentally identified as followers of Jesus Christ and part of the kingdom of God. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans or against the, uh, in, in front of the world around you that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ. That although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. In other words, that they may see the way you live and come to have faith in our God so that they too will become followers of Jesus Christ. Guys, we can say that God is love all day long. 
but how we live in our neighborhoods, how we live in this community, says far more about our God than our words do. How we choose to love people around us, people like the the unmarried couple living next door to one another that fight so loud that you're you're kept up at night just going, God, please enter into their reality. How we love them. How you love the kid with tattoos all over his body that loves to play that bass in his music so loudly that it shakes your windows. How we choose to love them says more about our God than the words that we speak. How we choose to respond to somebody when they, when they look at us and, and recognize that we've said that we're a Christ follower and they say, you're a bigot. You're judgmental. You're hateful. You're closed-minded. Your faith is a crutch and you are a weak individual. How we choose to respond to somebody when they accuse us of things that are not true or perhaps sometimes things that are true says more to the, the world than our words do? Do we respond tit for tat, anger with anger, hatred with hatred? They take a shot at us, we'll take a shot right back. Or do we choose to turn the other cheek? Do we choose to return hatred with love? Do we choose to take their curses and begin to pray for them? but it goes even beyond how we respond. We live in a culture whose values are very different than the values of the kingdom to which we swear allegiance. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world have very diametrically opposed values. The values of this culture that we find ourselves living in, again, says might makes right. A culture that celebrates those who have risen to the top of their game on the broken backs of their competition. And we celebrate that. We celebrate those who are powerful, those who are connected. And yet, the kingdom of God's value is that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant of everyone. In a culture that says only the strong survive, And we've got to keep fighting. (laughs) The kingdom of God's value says, our Lord is going to come not to be served, but to be a servant. And he is going to die in our place. And we should follow suit. Very different values. And we are called as Christ followers and as members of this kingdom the kingdom of God, to embrace those values even though they may not be appreciated, even though they may not be respected, even though we may find ourselves trampled upon at times, we are called to turn the other cheek, called to forgive, called to love in the face of judgment and hate and ridicule. Are we having fun yet? (laughs) Cool. Good. Let's keep going. I'm going to back up and just read verse 11 through, but we're going to keep going. Dear friends, 
I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst this world that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Well, certainly not some of these politicians we got. We don't need to submit to them because they are crooks and they are crooked. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will, our king's will, that by doing good we would silence the ignorant talk of foolish people who say because we disagree with them, because we live differently, we are automatically categorically wrong and we are small-minded and we are judgmental and all of those other things. He says, verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for doing evil. Oh, I, I, I belong to this kingdom, so I don't have to submit to the rules of the kingdom in which I find myself. There are some ambassadors of nations that basically flaunt their freedoms because I'm, I'm immune to your laws. And yet, we are called by our king to represent him and to submit to the rules and the laws of those who are in authority. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, that reverential respect for the creator and sustainer of everything. And honor the emperor or the president. As ambassadors of hope, we are called to enter into this reality. Even though this may not be our final destination, we are called to live as ambassadors of hope here. And part of that is to use the things that God has entrusted to our care to bring about the kingdom of God, to bring about his will even in the midst of a world that says I want nothing to do with God and I want to embrace values that are very contrary to the kingdom from which we claim to be from. Now I want to be very clear here. One of those responsibilities, one of those things that have been entrusted to us is the right to vote. Some of us might think as we step back and we look at this mess that we're in right now and say... None of them represent my heart. None of them are my choice. Therefore, I am going to wash my hands of this entire thing and just go, good on you. See you later. I'm part of that place. Right? And yet, we have been called to give voice to the values of our kingdom. And one of the voices that we have, one of the ways we are able to speak is through voting. And for us to simply wash our hands of this election because we're discouraged by it is tantamount to taking the talent that's been entrusted to us by our master and burying it in the ground. Thank you, Darlene. So vote. Look at not just the people at the top of the ticket, but at the platforms upon which they stand. 
look at not just the federal election, but the local one. Because there are choices that we have to make on November 8th that are more locally, that will be far more of an impact here in Costa Mesa or Huntington Beach or Orange County, wherever you happen to live, far more of an impact than some of those upper ticket kind of things. But all of them matter. If you have questions about that, again, I'm not the person to answer them. Come and see me afterwards. I can give you some links to people who are far smarter, who, who can speak to that, or at least give you access to the platform thing so you can educate yourself. But vote. However, a vote is not the only voice that we have. Because we may vote one time every couple of years for the kind of people we want governing us. But we vote every single day of our lives for the kind of community that we want to live in by the way we choose to live our life. We vote every single day for the kind of community we want to live in by the way that we, by the values that we allow to direct our steps, by the way we treat our neighbors, by the way we spend our money, by the way we spend our time, by the way and the places that we choose to serve and volunteer. And we have an opportunity every single day to shape the community in which we live. And we have not only an opportunity, but we have a responsibility to do so. I love this verse in in Jeremiah chapter 29. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this. Jeremiah is writing to... He's a prophet. He's speaking the words of God. So even though these are Jeremiah's words, they're words that God has impressed upon his heart. So in a way, he is writing as if he is God speaking to the Israelites who are no longer in the promised land, have been scattered throughout the world and find themselves living in a country that is not their own. And rather than rooting for that country to just come to ruin, listen to what God says through Jeremiah. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because as it prospers, so you will prosper. Do we pray for our community? A lot of times I I tend to pray for this community. I tend to pray for my family. I pray for, you know, if I hear of, of a Christ follower like I did this morning who has been abducted by, in Africa and is probably on his way to some ISIS camp right now, I pray for them. And I forget to pray for the two guards that were killed in the process and the families of uh, that, those guards that were killed in the abduction of this man. but I often forget to pray for our community beyond the walls of this church. More than that, sometimes I almost root for the leaders that are in powers of position, positions of power, that I didn't vote for to stumble. I root for them to mess up so that I can gloat and say, see, They don't have a clue. 
But the reminder here is that we are called to, to pray, not only for our communities, but for those who are in position of authority. Even if you didn't vote for them. So pray. Because even though this is not the kingdom to which we swear allegiance, this is not our primary home, this is not, we are not American Christians, we are Christians who happen to live here in America, we are still called to be ambassadors of hope here. And part of the the call of our Lord and Savior is to pray for and support and to invest ourselves into the place that we are as his representatives. That's lens number two. Lens number three is built upon this belief that our God can even use bad, crooked, broken politicians and broken systems of government to bring about his purpose and his plans. So here's the third lens that we're going to look through. Regardless of the outcome on on November 8th, God is still in control. Do you actually believe that? Sometimes I feel like I do. Other times, not so much. But I love this verse. It's Proverbs 16.33. Can we, can we throw it up there for a moment? If you've got it. Maybe you don't have it. You don't have it. So no, you can't. Hey, you do. All right. So this is from the message. So it's slightly different from how your Bibles might say it. But I love the heart of this, this proverb. It says, make your motions and cast your vote. But God has the final say. Make your motions and cast your vote, but ultimately God has the final say. And by the way, guys, this is not just one verse. There is verse after verse after verse and passage after passage in Scripture that reminds us that although we as free human beings have the ability to make decisions oftentimes that are contrary to our God, and even though we as free human beings have made a mess, of, of the good creation that God has made and entrusted to our care. God continues to work behind the scenes. And even though we may plan the course that we want to go down, he is ultimately directing our steps. I, I don't know about you, but I know that I have been wringing my hands as I look forward to November 8th going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? But here's the reminder we have in Scripture. God already knows. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows the outcome, and he knows how he's going to use the outcome of this election to begin to bring about or to continue to bring about his purpose and his plans in his creation. You don't believe me? Let me give you one example from Scripture. You don't have to turn here, but I'm gonna, I just want you to think for a moment. If you remember this story, think about the Israelites living in slavery in Egypt around the time of Moses. If you've seen the king of Egypt, or the king of, what is it? Yeah, is that the, the movie a long time ago before you guys were, what was it? The king and I know. <laughs> Come on. What is it? The, the king of Egypt? doesn't matter. Oh, the prince of something. Prince of Egypt. There we go. So you, you, you remember that story of, of the Israelites. I can't, the king and I? Seriously? I just think of John Nelson for whatever reason. When I, he's so handsome. Anyway, 
but he can't dance, so for sure not. Um, so, and we are totally off topic right now. ADD. Hey, look, squirrel. Um, seriously, Kelly. Think of the Israelites living in Egypt during the time of Moses, enslaved. And as they sit around their campfires, they start to reminisce about the times when it felt like God was in control. Remember that a couple hundred years before, remember the story of Joseph, that young kid who was a little cocky, who, who just had to tell his brothers about the dream where they were all bowing down to him. And the brothers start getting jealous because dad seems to favor him over the other brothers. So they say, you know what, we've got we to gotta get rid of him. And they sell him into slavery. Some of you guys are, don't take that idea, okay? It didn't end up, well, it ended up pretty well, actually, but don't do it. They sell him into slavery, but God uses that to put him into position. And then he, he starts to rise in this household where he's a slave, but he ultimately has a lot of influence in that family. And then the wife of his master kind of goes, hey, he's a cute looking guy. And she starts kind of siding up next to him and going, hey, how you doing? And he goes, get away from me, lady. Get behind me. And so she says, all right, you spite me, I'm going to spite you. And she accuses him of trying to molest her. And he finds himself jailed for a false accusation. God, where are you? And yet God used his son or his brothers selling him into slavery and a woman falsely accusing him to put him into position to talk to a king whom he otherwise never would have talked to and to be able to answer some dreams he had. And the king ultimately places him into a position of influence so that he's not only able to help Egypt flourish, but he's able to help his family. And in um, Genesis chapter 50, when, when Joseph is finally standing before his brothers again and they recognize it's the brother that they sold into slavery and they're going, oh shoot, he is going to rail on us. Listen to what Joseph says to them. Guys, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save the lives of many. So you may have tried to hurt me. Potiphar's wife may have tried to hurt me by her accusations, but God used their choices to bring about his purpose and plan and to put me into exactly where I needed to be. And so, so, so as those Israelites are sitting around the campfire reminiscing about Joseph being in a position of power, second only to the Pharaoh of that time, then they start looking around themselves and they go, how far we've fallen. As they start massaging sore muscles and, and calloused hands from a lifetime of slavery, they start thinking about the Pharaoh that's in power at that point a Pharaoh that's very different from the one that entrusted power to Joseph, a Pharaoh that has enslaved them rather than treating them as honored guests. And I don't doubt for a moment that if they had a vote, they would have not voted for that Pharaoh to be in control. Maybe they would have cast their vote for somebody like Moses to be their, you know, uh, politician of change or something like that. He, he's, he's my guy. He's who I want to get behind. And yet, that Pharaoh was placed there for a purpose. And we read in Exodus chapter 9, Moses confronts Pharaoh, this Pharaoh that had enslaved his people, 
And again, speaking for God, this is what he says to Pharaoh, as if God is speaking to this man in power. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. I could have removed you immediately. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Israelites, that Pharaoh might not have been your choice, but he was God's choice to accomplish his purpose and his plans. Slavery may not have been your choice. But think about how God used redeeming them from slavery, bringing them through the Red Sea, allowing the Egyptians almost to get there so that they followed them through the Red Sea and then decimated an army without the Israelites needing to raise a fist. Think of the way that he used the time in the wilderness where he provided water and manna and and food and their clothes didn't wear out and ultimately brought them to a land that was so much better. God used the persecution they experienced. God used the Pharaoh that did not bend a knee to him, but God still used him to glorify himself and advance his purpose and plan. Now I want us to step back and think for a moment about where we find ourselves. Right now, it probably feels like we are on the precipice of either something that could potentially be hopeful or something really, really bad. And depending on the outcome of this election, our country rises or falls. And I don't know which way you lean, but I know that probably about 45% of people in our country are going to be sorely disappointed on November 9th to find that the person or the party that they were voting for did not get into office. And in fact, probably some of the 55% that did get their person are still going to be like, what did I just sign up for? Right? And yet, let us not forget that in the midst of this, our God is still working behind the scenes to bring about his purpose and his plans. And let us also not forget that our God's ways are not always our ways. And how he chooses to bring about his purpose may not be how we would choose for him to bring it about. It may actually mean that where our country needs to go is actually through further brokenness and through further persecution. It may need to become where we cannot openly worship. That may need to be where he takes us in order for him to ultimately bring about his purpose and his plans. Jesus warned us, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. And they sure did persecute Jesus. And I think about the way that God has used persecution to advance his purposes. His goal was for Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the price for us on the cross. That is something we celebrate every Easter. And yet it took persecution at the hands of the Romans and the Pharisees to bring that about. We just studied through Acts. And you remember how God said, you're going to be my my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But those early Christians were very content to stay in Jerusalem until persecution broke out and ultimately scattered them like a dandelion to the wind. And as I look at our world right now, It seems like in a lot of ways the gospel is languishing. The church 
has grown weak. Your generation is coursing out of churches saying they're a bunch of hypocrites. And yet, there are pockets of places in this world where the gospel is taking root and producing hundreds and hundreds of people come into faith where it is absolutely exploding. And those places are typically where there is the greatest persecution. Places like China. Places like the Middle East. So God's ultimate purpose is that every man, woman, and child who has been created in his image, that's everyone, would come to know him and to be saved. He wants that none shall perish, but all have eternal life. And perhaps the greatest way for him to accomplish that is through greater persecution. And I need to tell you, that's not how I'm voting. But I want us to remember that how we think God works is not always how God is going to work things out. What we think is the greatest good is not always the greatest good. May we not be overwhelmed. May we not be fearful. So here's the point. And if you have your outlines, let's read this. I left mine down here. But I, this, is, this basically is just the, the heart that I want us to get this morning. On Tuesday, November 8th, go to a polling station and vote. Vote for a temporary leader for our temporary home. But don't forget that we're foreigners living in this land and that God is our true And while we reside here, we're called to be his ambassadors, reflecting his heart to our hurting world in both word and deed, and the things that we do and the way that we love people and the way that we turn the other cheek. We reflect the values of the kingdom from which we're from. Just remember, despite the outcome of this or any election, our God is in control, and he will bring about his purpose and plans in this world and in the one that's to come. That is the hope we have. And I hope that this biblical perspective or these lenses we've looked through has given you a little bit different perspective. It doesn't mean we wash our hands of it. It doesn't mean we stop worrying about it. It doesn't mean we stop praying about it. It just means that perhaps we see it from a different light, recognizing that our king is truly king. Hopefully first here, then in our family and then in the way that we interact with our neighbors and into our community and into our country and into our world. My prayer is the same prayer that Jesus prayed. And if you bow your heads with me, I'm going to close with this. I invite the, the worship team to come forward for a time of response. Father, you're in heaven and I ask that your name would be glorified and made holy set apart from all other names. And our prayer today is that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our community, in our country, and in our world, just as it is in heaven. And we invite you to use us as both your children and as your ambassadors to reflect the hope that we find in you and to bring the seeds of the good news to to weary, hurting hearts. 
And I pray that you would advance your kingdom into their reality as well. We entrust this election into your hands. We pray that you would select not just the party and the politician who sits in the White House, but that every single decision on that ballot you would be in the midst of. Would you guide our steps? And would you remind us that we vote not just on one day, but every single day of our lives. And we reflect your heart. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. You guys, we're just